Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt. Where I look at the week's financial news, that can be a bit confusing, misleading, and take you off course, and I hope to make it actionable, understandable, and clear. What a show for you this week. Thanks for tuning in. We are going to look at what investors should do who are afraid right now, according to a financial psychologist. I didn't know they had those, but I fancy myself as one. But this person is an actual psychologist and a finance professional. Look at what he says. A Wall Street Journal article, the S&P 500 has shown resilience in spite of the banking crisis. What is going on there? And then I have just a grab bag of data. We're going to hear from Mr. Peter Lynch and from a venture capitalist who was riding high on his horse in the 2020-2021 time frame and what this new investing environment of higher interest rates has taught them. So, at the top here, CNBC article headline reads, Investors are pretty afraid right now. Financial psychologist says these two steps can help. The article continues with high inflation, the threat of a recession, and ongoing market volatility. We're in a period of high financial uncertainty. Understandably, many investors are pretty afraid right now, said Brad Klontz. This is a psychologist and certified financial planner. Now, whenever I read quotes like this, I always want to remind the listener, the threat of a recession is ever-present. Ongoing market volatility is nothing to fear for the long-term investor. And high inflation, while rare for the younger investor, is not completely foreign and has come about in our country and globe's history many times. So no need to fear. History is here. We can just look at it. What he says to do, and I think I actually think it could be helpful, um, we need to not be really scared. So he says, it can make us do the absolutely wrong thing when it comes to investing. So he, he's, this, he's got this psychology knowledge, and he says survival mechanisms can kick in during these stressful situations, which investing can admittedly be. And so we do things that aren't helpful. He suggests two things. I love lists that are short. Whenever someone says, I've got an eight-point eight solution for you, I'm out. I am out. Two-point solution, I'm in. So here we go. He says, step number one, when we're nervous, remind yourself why you're investing. Most of us are long-term investors, Klontz says. Does looking at a narrow time frame of reference make sense for you? So if you don't need the money for decades, he must be listening to the podcast. Keep that time rising long. He says, hey, don't worry about the next few months. And this is my favorite. Oh, at least that's something that I like. Zooming out, the average annual return on stocks was around 8% between 1900 and 2017 after adjusting for inflation. So class, that's a real return. Mm-hmm. According to Steve Hankey, a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. It must be a feeder school of some sort for Texas A&M. Nice to see them in there. But 1900 to 2017, a real return of 8%, well, we can kind of hang there, right? That's, that's really good. And this is a little Robert Hunt aside. If you know the rule of 72, if anyone's ever taught you the rule of 72, it's a pretty cool rule. You have the number 72, and you divide that number by whatever rate of return is, and you figure out how long it takes your money to double. So this may be worth Googling, but let's say you earned, keep the math simple, 7.2% a year. How long would it take your money to double? 10 years. See what we did there? 
72 divided by 7.2 is 10. So, how do we translate this? If we're going to real return of 8%, that means our money is doubling faster than 10 years. If we just stuck with 1900 to 2017, that's pretty good, guys. Over the last 20 years, the S&P produced an average annual return of around 6%. However, if you miss the best 20 days in the market over that time span because you can, became convinced you should sell and then reinvest later, your return would shrivel to just 0.1%, according to analysis by Charles Schwab. That bears reading again, doesn't it? Because a lot of what I hear at times like these is, hey, let's just let's take this horse from the barn and ride the storm out. No reason to expose ourselves to the rain and the wind, i.e. inflation and volatility, all the things referenced in the article. Well, what the data says is if you miss just 20 days, just 20 days, the best 20 days in the last 20 years, your 6% return went to basically nothing. That puts an incredible amount of pressure on you, the investor, to be exactly right. Point number two. So that's point number one. Remind yourself why you're investing. Point number two, this, this person makes, ask yourself, what is the money for? Article says, of course, most people aren't saving and investing only for long-term goals. If market is, volatility is causing lots of stress, you may need to make adjustments. And that may be. I think that's right. If you're about to buy a house, want to buy a car, he says there's a good chance you're going to get hurt. So I, I would affirm and agree with, hey, let's look at when you need the money and invest accordingly. That's why I like those target date funds and retirement accounts because they do kind of just force us to look at the date and stick with it till then. If it says 2055, do not open till 2055. Wall Street Journal article, and this caught my eye for reasons the um, journalist probably didn't even think about, but the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update, we're playing 3D chess, we're looking through the text. We're not reading the news as they want us to read it. We're reading the news with the lenses of some of the greatest financial works of all time. So this is Hardika Singh wrote this week. The headline, S&P 500's resilience in the banking crisis is largely thanks to tech. Subheadline, Microsoft and Apple have together contributed more points to the index advance than all the financial stocks have subtracted. Whoa. I mean, that's... That might be all the article we need to read. That's that's worth chewing on a little bit, isn't it? So I'll say it again. Microsoft and Apple, two very large tech companies, have together contributed more points to the index the S&P 500's advance, that index advance, than all the financial stocks have subtracted. Wow. Article continues. Big technology stocks are back in the market's driver's seats. The S&P 500 has gained 3.3% since March 8th. When trouble began brewing ahead of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Isn't that interesting? All, you remember all those headlines we read about, oh, we got trouble, my friends. We got trouble right here in Banking City. Sure. I'm singing the music man now, but you might remember the music man. He was trying to stir up trouble to sell band equipment in town. Well, sometimes the news is trying to stir up trouble for us to read, to sell ads. So the news said, you got trouble in banking. Uh-oh. Well, what happened? What happened, class, when that trouble started? Uh, not not a lot, Bob. Not a lot happened here. Um, since March 8th, uh, market's up. And that's when trouble began with Silicon Valley Bank. Hmm. Okay. Because I remember as an index fund investor, people used to make fun of me for this truth. They'd say, ah, oh, you index fund investors, don't you know how overweight tech you are? Don't you know you're essentially just buying Apple and Microsoft and Google and Facebook and 
And you got to kind of brush, you know, smile and nod and move about your day. But here, here's where index fund investor. I want, I want us to remember it cuts both ways. It's, it can sometimes hurt. It can sometimes help. The article reads: the five biggest companies account for 23% of the index in the S&P 500. Whoa! I'll say that again: the five biggest companies in that S&P 500. So there are 495 other companies, but those top five, they are 23% of the market cap. That's all the shares, all the value combined of the index. They have the greatest influence over its direction. So what happened? Well, the S&P 500 tech sector, which is home to, the, you know these names, Microsoft, Apple, etc., Google, Facebook, it's gained 7.9% since the start of the banking crisis. And the communications segment, that's, I didn't, you know, Google and Facebook are put in that segment sometimes, it's up 8.7%. Now, what happens if you, and this, was, this, this strategy was pushed real hard and still is, the article says, what if there was an equal weighted version of the S&P 500? Okay, classy. That, this has been Why don't we, as a way to avoid this concentration in these larger companies, just do an equal weighted version? Meaning each individual component of the S&P 500 will have an equal weighting. Well, had you done that, you're down 1%. Okay, so this is not to say that it's somehow an inferior strategy if you want to do equal weighting, or it's somehow necessarily superior to do market cap weighting. It's all about, you guessed it, cost and what can you stick with. You remember our three tenets, keeping those costs low, that time rising long, that investing simple. Well, market cap weighted indices, which the S&P 500 is, it checks all three boxes. If we want to go equal weighting, a little bit of a wrinkle there, a little bit of complexity. Will you stick with it during these times? Probably not. Probably not. So take heart, investor. There are times when you will be accused of being a duffel pud for being an index fund investor because don't you know 23% of the indexes in five stocks? And you'll hear them accuse you of that. You'll be a duffel pud. That's a C.S. Lewis word. Chronicles of Narnia word, but you're not. You listen to me. You, when they tell you you're silly, you just you just play this podcast that very same night. You just keep this next to your bedside table and you play it on speaker. You let your significant other listen to it as well. And you remind yourself, I am not that. In fact, I, this is the high, indexing is the height of wisdom because I do get to check those boxes. So keeping it simple, keeping it low cost. And it does. It pays off in times like these. Wow, aren't we glad we didn't try to rotate out of the big bad tech because it kind of saved your butter here, saved your bread. So the financial sector has taken a big hit. It's down 7.5% since that March 8 Silicon Valley Bank crisis. And yet, if you're just a ho-hums S&P 500 plain vanilla investor or, a, or a, it's basically the same thing, total stock market investor, didn't really do a lot to us, did it? In fact, you yeah. If you hadn't read the headlines, you wouldn't have known anything that happened. So, the rest of the article has all sorts of ideas from various financial advisors that I don't think are very good. No surprise. But the good idea is what we can learn here is that simple wins sometimes. Now, there are going to be times when simple doesn't win, at least in the short run. Well, look, you know, There could be an article just like this that says, oh, look at big tech. It's struggling, and therefore... These index investors will call, they'll use words like getting caught flat-footed or the tide's coming in or, you know, 
the value investors are doing better. You don't listen to them one bit. You remember that you're going to control what you can control for. Cost, time horizon, structure of complexity or simplicity. Control for that. And then I just found some great, um, great articles, great words of wisdom. Peter Lynch, who is a stock picker, all right? Sometimes when you are reading someone who doesn't agree in their entirety with your philosophy of investment, you just take the very good and you cut out the bad, like eating a fish with its bones. You eat around the bones, eat that meat, and you throw those bones away. So Peter Lynch, very famous um, investor with Fidelity and the Magellan Fund, he, he some great truths mentioned today I saw on Twitter. He has, I'm, I'm, I'm lifting this from one of his books. He says, far more money has been lost by investors trying to anticipate corrections than has been lost in all the corrections combined. Woo! Okay, he's telling us pretty clearly, don't try to hop in out of the market here. Don't do it. He, the, he continues, here's another telling statistic. Starting in 1970, if you were unlucky and invested $2,000 at the peak of the market in each successive year, all right, your annual return was 8.5%. If you timed the market perfectly and invested your $2,000 at the low point in the market in each successive year, your annual return was 10.1%. So the difference between great timing and lousy timing is 1.6%. I thought that was revelatory. I figured the margin would be different than that. Was not. So it just reminds us, it is just a silly game. Wait, and I, my instincts tell me to do this too. I'm just going to wait this thing out. I had to institute rules for myself to just set up a schedule of buying. He, at the very end, he gives us the punchline of the sermon. He says, Buy shares in good companies and hold on to them through thick and thin. Now, what do you and I know? That's called an index fund, Mr. Lynch. We'll just do that. You know, it's fine for him to do his individual security selection. And he says, set up a schedule of buying stocks or stock mutual funds and be done. And did you know, listener, that your very own podcast host had to do that for himself because he was so tempted to market time? Yes. Yes, this is true. Even the very own host here had to create a set up systems in place to force me to not think about market timing because it just feels instinctual. Then it's, does it not, the data tells me the truth, but my instincts lie. And they tell me, well, and for me, I overthink it. I think, well, I'm just going to invest in the bad times. I'm going to invest when it gets really bad. That's what I want to invest. I'm just going to wait for it to get worse. That doesn't work. got to listen to the data. And then you guys may have remembered this. I I mentioned this in the podcast many moons ago, but there was a venture capitalist who received a lot of television time called Chamath Palihapitya. I hope I said that last name right. He's a Sri Lankan-born Canadian-American venture capitalist, SPAC sponsor, founder and CEO of Social Capital. He was an early employee at Facebook, but he loves to pontificate on all things investing, and he got caught up in, I'll say, the new age of investing that occurred in these low interest rate environments. And I want to read a quote to you from his annual letter. Okay. Now, whenever I read quotes like this, I don't want us to think we're in any way trying to make fun of this gentleman or delight in his shortcomings or delight in what's happened to him that's wrong. I just want us to learn from him because you and I know we easily could get caught up into this stuff. And he's experienced a great deal of success as well. He writes, a small line of credit that we use to drive incremental returns during, he calls it ZERP, it's the zero interest rate environment, quickly ballooned 
as some of the assets we use to collateralize it saw up to a 70% reduction in price. Whew. What initially seemed like access to free money became a liability that we managed carefully so we could continue to do business as usual. I'm going to pause the quote there. We're going to define some things. He was, he was not alone in this theory, and there were a lot of people doing it. So it's hard to remember. It wasn't that long ago, but interest rates used to be basically zero. So you could borrow money from a broker or from a bank and buy stocks, buy securities, and juice returns. He references right here. We could, we could drive incremental returns. That's his $5 language. We're going to drive incremental returns. And it's just, it's a, it feels like $5 bill on a sidewalk, but it's really a $5 bill on a train track. It's not on the sidewalk. There is no free lunch here, right? So he continues, what initially seemed like access to free money became a liability that we managed carefully so we could continue to do business as usual. Whoa. Whoa, class, you hear this? This little bit of leverage, just a little bit of leverage to juice returns, which I hear about all the time. Robert, why don't you just borrow a little bit from your portfolio and reinvest that if you're borrowing from these people at 3%, why not earn 8%? There's a difference of 5% and just do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I hear it all the time. Without fail, those folks have not lived through a very difficult financial experience. Without fail. So, let's learn from this Chamath. And he says, I have always considered myself to be a sober, risk-averse person. Notice he said he considers himself. I never considered him that. Self-assessment's difficult. We look at our natural face in the mirror and at once forget what we were like. Isn't that right, class? We do that. So, he relied on, he says, on a large margin of safety when investing. Mm-hmm. I never saw that. To be consistent with myself, I had to recalibrate my original models and question from first principles the purpose of leverage in the first place. Wow. Now, I, I got this off Twitter, and the person who pushed this out said, summarize this saying, we got margin called. Okay? So that's someone being a little crass saying, you got margin called. Let's learn from this class. Let's say, yeah, why did he have to borrow money? He didn't. He said he wanted to juice returns, but why? Now, you notice our friend Warren Buffett, he, he never does this. He never does this. Now, you might argue, well, does, does he not, you know, with insurance, invest the float? Of course he does. Does he not um, do this in minor ways? Yeah, not really. He, he's got a, whatever he has, $150 billion in U.S. Treasuries. He doesn't do this. There might be little tweaks here and there with financial engineering. Does not do what this Chamath did. So, when he says to be consistent with myself, I had to recalibrate my original models, it means whoops. The borrower is, in fact, slave to the lender and wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But those who gather little by little will prosper. Turns out that is still the truth. So, stick with it, friends. And as always... Keep your costs low, keep your investing simple, keep your time horizon long.